History happened everywhere. A random place, a random time, and a topic pulled from the hat. The challenge? Find the fascinating, uncover the unexpected, and share the stories. You're listening to... History happened everywhere. My name is Pete Goddard and I'm here in the HHE studio with the death in my paradise. It's Mr. Ryan Weir. That's me. <laughs> I like that. I sound mysterious. Mysterious and sinister. That's how I find you, Ryan. Yeah. Last week, the Dursleter gave us the topic of carte blanche in the place of Guadeloupe during 2010 to 2015. So potentially an easy topic. You've got carte blanche, Ryan, yeah. but why don't you tell us what you're going to do today? <laughs> Okay, yeah, sure. So in this week's episode, we are going to give ourselves permission to head to the Caribbean to learn what it takes to build a monument. We're going to meet the man whose vision was challenged by forces abroad, find out why sugar is not always sweet, and learn why silver-covered quartz can inspire the world. Welcome to the Butterfly Islands. Welcome to the Pearl of the French Caribbean. Welcome to Guadeloupe. Well, that sounds very exciting, Ryan. My vision is challenged, as it happens, so I'm already empathising with your episode content. Uh, But why don't you start us off by telling us where in the world are we? Yeah, shall I orient you? Orient me. Okie doke. Well, if you look at a map between North and South America, you're going to find the Caribbean Sea. And within the Caribbean is a group of islands which form an arc called the Lesser Antilles. And somewhere in the middle of that, beneath Montserrat, just above Dominica, is Guadeloupe. Oh, Montserrat and Dominica. That's I could have just zoomed right in on them, Ryan, obviously. I know. Not everyone knows the, the geography quite as well as you, Pete. <laughs> Guadeloupe is not a country, though, Pete. It is, in fact, considered a French-administered territory. Ooh. Yeah, which basically means that it's an overseas region of France. So it's subject to all the same laws and regulations, pretty much as if it were on mainland France. That's interesting. I did not know that. It's also not one place. Guadeloupe is actually a collection of more than 12 islands. The two largest, which most people consider to be Guadeloupe, are called Basse-Terre and Grande-Terre. Big ground and other ground? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and together, these two islands are separated by a narrow channel called Salt River, which if you uh, get a satellite image above, you're going to see Guadeloupe looking like a bit like a butterfly. Oh, nice. The whole area covers 1,628 square kilometres, that's 629 square miles for those people that need it, and uh, that's around three times the size of Paris, or roughly 395 times smaller than a France. Well, I mean, it is a bit of a France, isn't it, in this case? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it's exactly right. Yeah, and it is a tropical place, so you can expect palm trees, sandy beaches, but there's also an active volcano there too called Soufrère, which is about 5,000 feet high. That's 1,500 metres. Uh, and that last erupted as recently as April 2021. Ooh. So in terms of people, Guadeloupe has a population of around 400,000 citizens, most of whom are of African or mixed descent. French is the official language, Catholicism the religion, and the national symbol is the Guadeloupe woodpecker, a bird with black plumage that has a long tongue with horny backward-facing hooks that it uses to extract insects from holes in wood. Ooh, horny hooks. Yeah, horny hooks. So the currency is the euro, the capital is the island of Bestair, and uh, tourism is the most significant part of Guadeloupe's economy, as you can well imagine with the palm trees and the beaches. In fact, over one million visitors arrive every year to go sitting on beaches, go diving, and drink rum produced locally from the various different distilleries. Hurrah! Hurrah for rum! (laughs) (laughs) thought you'd appreciate that. Uh, the official flag, bet you can't guess what it is. Is it red, gold and green? No, it's the French tricolore. Oh, uh, which has <laughs> I'm an idiot. <laughs> yes, you are. Uh, and so that has the three vertical bands I think most people are going to be familiar with, are blue, white and red. However, there is also an unofficial Guadeloupe flag uh, which exists, and that is a little more elaborate. It has a black or a red background, and uh, on top of which is an image of a yellow sun with a green sugarcane. And above that is a blue stripe containing three yellow fleur-de-lis. 
That does sound elaborate. It is a super elaborate little flag, but I quite like it, actually. And as a region of France, it might not surprise you to learn that the national anthem is... (laughs) Yeah, this is what it sounds like. I like it. I find this upbeat and stirring. I've always been a fan of the French national anthem. Yeah, it's fun, isn't it? It's got like a jaunty aspect to it. Jaunty, that's exactly right. So it was supposedly written in one night on April 25th, 1792. It was composed by a captain in the French army called Claude-Joseph Roger de Lazile. That's a heck of a name. He originally called it War Song for the Army of the Rhine. But if someone said, I've written War Song for the Army of the Rhine, I'd yeah. be ready for something quite different to... Yeah. So it was also sung for the first time by soldiers from Marseille. They were marching on their way to Paris to join in the French Revolution. Is that why they call it the Marseillais? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. It eventually became the National Anthem of France in 1879. And is there an alternative local island song that can function as a sort of more local anthem? No, but music is very popular in Guadeloupe, so I think you could pick some of the local music and that would do. could knock out an anthem next time we're there. Exactly. There you go. What do you think about that? I'm very happy to be in Guadeloupe. It's got rum, it's got sun, it's got everything I like. Indeed. It's also got... Guadeloupe facts! Of course it does. So, Guadeloupe facts. Yes, it's got rum, it's got sandy beaches. It's also had... Pirates! Ooh! Of the Caribbean? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So, from the late 1600s to the early 1800s, Guadeloupe was a frequent haunt for a pirate. Uh, Drawn to the islands, because it was basically a major trading hub, pirates plagued the water. They were attacking merchant ships and plundering the land, taking whatever loot that they could grab. Blackbeard, I'm sure you'll have heard of him, he was said to have attacked Guadeloupe on a number of occasions, as did Calico Jack Rackham, who shipped the Revenge, terrified the French Navy apparently. Wasn't he one of Tintin's arch foes? <laughs> Red Rackham. Red, yeah. Oh yes, that was it. <laughs> yeah. So piracy became such a problem though, Pete, for the French government in particular, that they took steps to protect the island by building a whole bunch of forts and then stationing troops on Guadeloupe. In fact, today you can visit Fort Fleur d'Epie, which is one of the remaining forts, and uh, you can also board a replica pirate ship called La Galleon Pirate. And of course, if you're really on a mission to discover what life was like as a pirate, you can do no better than visiting Pirate's Adventure Golf, a pirate-themed 18-hole <laughs> mini golf course. Well, as a fan of both adventure golf and piracy i'm totally in for that (laughs) (laughs) but yes talking of pirates and guadeloupe you might have heard of the legend pete of the ghost ship the flying dutchman said to be doomed to sail the seas forever i very much have well one of its origin stories says that the ship was once captained by a pirate called willem van de decken and uh, he was a ruthless and cruel man who found himself caught in a storm off the coast of guadeloupe and vowed to sail the seas forever if he could just get his ship to safety well according to legend his wish was granted and upon his death his spirit was then cursed to sail the high seas forevermore Willem van der Decken on the Decken. <laughs> <laughs> Captain on Decken. <laughs> <laughs> and if you consider yourself a treasure hunter then, Pete, Guadeloupe is probably a decent bet to find some buried gold because there are rumours that a French pirate called Jean Hamlin, he hid his treasure on a beach in Guadeloupe shortly before being killed by the Navy and never disclosing where it was, which means that his treasure is still out there, still waiting to be discovered (gasps) holiday to guadeloupe take my metal detector boom profit yeah you say that but i looked into it (laughs) and with no treasure map and 249 miles of coastline uh you might want to skip that in fact instead of that let's take our metal detector and head to morn rouge a mountain that supposedly contains an entire pirate ship filled with treasure in a mountain in the mountain in morn rouge that feels implausible well, <laughs> I haven't finished. <laughs> but, Pete, we, if we do go, we need to beware, because the legend says that the ship is guarded by a fearsome dragon. <laughs> so, unless you have any experience of killing dragons, I advise that we leave that one alone too. 
I think I'm I'm still in for the hunt, but I want to do the beach hunt because it feels a bit like we have a rum, we metal detect, we find gold or we don't. We've had a good time on the beaches of Guadeloupe. Right. I mean, how difficult is it to search 249 miles of coastline? I wouldn't, might not get through all of them, but I think we could give it a good old college try, as they say in America. <laughs> yeah. Well, it would certainly take us a long time, Pete. And talking of time... Oh, segue! (laughs) (laughs) A final Guadeloupe fact for you here. The oldest living person on Guadeloupe is Emmeline Bacarmen, who at the time of this recording in August 2023 is 112 years and 89 days old. Wow. Yeah, she is known by her family as Mimi, and Emmeline was born in 1911. She spent much of her life living in the countryside. She was a farmer and a merchant. And uh, she puts her long life down to eating vegetables and finding joy in singing. Wow, I don't do either of those things, so I think my time (laughs) is rapidly approaching its conclusion. Maybe I need to change a few things up in my life. (laughs) Sing some songs and eat a carrot, Pete, you'll be fine. All right. Yeah, but with good health, she will pass the oldest living Guadalupe Martha Roche, who died in 2020 at the grand age of 113 years and 33 days. So she hasn't got long. Do you think she's got a little calendar and she's marking off going, come on, I'm going to have this record. (laughs) Going to get you, Martha. (laughs) Well, if she is, she still has a long way to go past the oldest living person, who is Maria Brañas Morera, who at 116 years old lives in Spain and she has her own Twitter account. I bet she does. She must be tweeting things like, do you remember? Oh, no, you wouldn't. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And if Emmeline does manage to pass 116 years, then she still has even further to go to reach the oldest person to have ever lived, a Jeanne-Louis Calmont, who died in 1997, aged 122 years and 164 days old. 122, Pete! That's a that's, I can't even imagine what your perception of the world must be having seen that much change and just life. Yeah. I mean, she says that she has survived as long as she has, despite eating a kilogram of chocolate every week and smoking every day from the age of 21 to 117. Despite <laughs> or because of? Surely at that well, point, you've got to be sponsored by Camel or similar. <laughs> I mean, I guess this is the, the thing, isn't it? Do you pick vegetables and singing or a kilogram of chocolate and smoke it every day? I mean, I've, I know how long I want my life to be and I know how long I want my life to see. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Last thing around Jean, apparently in her youth, she sold painting canvases and she sold some painting canvases to Vincent van Gogh, Ah. who she remembered fondly as being ugly as sin and blessed with a vile temper and a smell of booze. <laughs> Doesn't sound inaccurate, does it? I I have to say I feel like Vincent did the majority of the work there, though. Don't think she can claim too much. Like that canvas, that was me. That was. <laughs> but talking of blank canvases, oh, here we go. <laughs> I'm going to bask in the link here. <laughs> Lay it on me. <laughs> well, talking of blank canvases, this is a carte blanche episode. Beautiful. So, uh, we'll get to that shortly. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Pete. Hey, Ryan. I'm stuck in a Guadeloupe. You're what? I'm stuck in a Guadeloupe. Stuck in a Guadeloupe? Yeah, I'm stuck in a Guadeloupe. Stuck in a Guadeloupe? Yeah, I'm stuck in a Guadeloupe. Well, now we're both stuck in a Guadeloupe. We're both stuck in a Guadeloupe? Yeah, we're both stuck in a Guadeloupe. We're both stuck in a Guadeloupe. All right, let's stop it now. Yeah, all right. Guadeloupe! Well, Ryan, I am delighted to be in the Caribbean. This seems like a lovely place to be. I'm ready. I've got my metal detector in hand. But what about the history of this place? Tell me what's gone on. You want to know what's happened there? I do. I want everything. Okay. Well, 4,000 years ago, Pete, the first people arrive. You might want to call them... Early man. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's not the classic early man, but they are the earliest man on Guadalupe. Yeah, quite late Um, man, really, aren't they? Yeah, they didn't call it Guadalupe either. They called it Caracura, which meant the island of beautiful water. Oh, nice. These were the Arawak Indians, otherwise known as the Lacono people, an indigenous tribe from South America. They migrated north into the Caribbean and they were looking to set up shop on the various islands there. 
They settled on Guadeloupe, they grew crops, they fished the sea, and gradually established a society which had a complex belief system, the remnants of which, Pete, can still be seen today with uh, petroglyphs of animals, humans, and various shapes and symbols carved into the sides of Morn Rouge Mountain. You know, the one with the dragon in it. Ah. So around a thousand years ago, though, the island is taken over by an aggressive tribe known as the Caribs, who uh, ship up and violently push the Arawak out. 493 years passes, and it's November 4th, 1493, and guess who arrives? The Portuguese! <laughs> I know that's the standard response, but not on this occasion. The clue was in 1493. Oh, Columbus. That's right. It's Christopher Columbus, who on his second trip to the Americas, runs out of fresh water and uh, makes a pit stop on the islands, which he decides to claim for Spain, calling it Santa Maria da Guadalupe. Yeah, always a welcome guest in previous episodes we've discovered. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, so it's named after a statue of the Virgin Mary, which can be found still in the Spanish town of Guadalupe. So Columbus and the Spanish don't linger around, though, just enough time to use it as a bit of a trading outpost and to, you know, spread their diseases such that the native population is effectively wiped out. That was one of their things. They did love doing that. So in 1635, French colonists arrive and finding only a few remaining natives left, they decide to seize the land and colonise it. They begin growing tobacco, they later switch to sugarcane, and of course you need a workforce for your plantations, so the French turn to Africa, and they import over 40,000 slaves to work for them under especially brutal conditions. In the latter half of the 1600s, during the reign of King Henry XIV, Guadeloupe is officially recognised as part of France, and the islands fall completely under French control. However, recognising the benefits of occupying Guadeloupe, Britain decides it wants in on the action too, and between 1759 and 1815, the two nations fight it out between each other repeatedly, basically taking turns at occupying the islands, and depending on who won and who lost, their most recent battle was in charge. Bagging up the sugar for the export, presumably. Yeah, so after Napoleon's defeat at the Battle of Waterloo in 1815, there is a peace agreement between Britain and France, one of the clauses of which being that Guadeloupe is finally handed over to the French. Slavery is abolished in 1794, but that doesn't last long, Pete, because within just six years, slavery is reinstated by Napoleon, who uh, wanted to appease the colony's plantation owners who had been grumbling a bit about the abolition's impact on their profits. That's sad, but not surprising. Yeah. And so, Guadeloupe faces another 40 years of slavery until it is finally abolished properly in 1848. In the late 1800s, Guadeloupe's economy suffers as the price of sugar declines, and this leads to social unrest and demands for political reform. In 1946, Guadeloupe changes its status and becomes a French overseas department, making it effectively no different than any other French region like uh, Grand Est or Normandy. Um, that means that the citizens of Guadeloupe now have the same rights as anyone else living in France, but are also subject to the same governments, rules, regulations, taxes and policies, that sort of stuff. Now, this limits the ability for the islands to control their own way forward, so questions of independence and full autonomy start to be debated. Bear in mind they're probably seeing that on other islands and around the world pretty much. And in the 1960s, this escalates into general strikes, mass protests, even some violence as activists push for better wages, improved working conditions and the right to manage themselves. Manage themselves? Good lord. I know, what right? Upstarts. <laughs> yeah. But all attempts at independence are actively suppressed by the French government, often violently. And so things remain pretty much as they were. Now, things cool down in the 70s, and the islands become something of an attractive destination for tourists, so much so that the holidaymakers and the honeymooners are now central to the island's economy. And with funding from France, infrastructure, education, living standards, they all improve. But by 2009, protests resume, basically over the cost of living. And there's like a month-long general strike, which paralyzes the economy and only stops when France pledges to reform its policies. But trouble in Guadeloupe isn't over, Pete, because a hurricane hits in 2017 and the island experiences significant economic problems because, well, they've got to rebuild the entire island pretty much. And now this is just in time, of course, for COVID lockdowns to then appear, which 
kill off the tourist industry completely. And so today, in 2023, the islands are recovering, but they do continue to experience somewhat of a shaky economy. And of course, the debate about independence and local autonomy hasn't disappeared. That continues to remain a significant conversation piece. But it is a beautiful place. Guadeloupe is full of all those Caribbean treats you might want to experience with white sands, crystal blue waters, and towering waterfalls providing a picture postcard playground for visitors to explore. Well, I must say, Guadeloupe has always been, prior even to this episode, I know we have a tendency to want to visit the places we talk about, mm. but I have always been on the brink of visiting Guadeloupe. I actually planned to go precisely when COVID hit, actually. So yeah. uh, I will be there in as soon as I can get there, guys. I'm, I'm, I'm on my way, is all I can say. <laughs> can I come? Absolutely. Hurrah! <laughs> Nigel, why am I carving these symbols on the mountain again? Well, to tell everyone about the dragon. Oh, yeah, the dragon. It'll warn people in the future not to go into the mountain or else the dragon will get them. Yeah, 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 that makes sense. But why don't we just write, beware the dragon or something? All these weird symbols and animals and stuff just seems a little complicated, no? Not at all. You see this symbol? What, the wavy lines? Yeah, those are clearly the dragon's breath. Ah, right. And these symbols? What, the star and fish? Yeah, star and fish means don't go inside. Oh, right. Do they, though? Oh, yeah, it's a common symbol for don't go inside, star and fish. Really? Yeah, yeah, future passers-by will see our work and they'll think, star, fish, wavy lines, don't go inside because the dragon will get you. Right, okay. We're saving lives here. All right, if you say so, Nigel. I do. But one thing, why am I carving a great big penis, then? Oh, well, that's a warning about the volcano, obviously. Oh, yeah, I see it now. Okay, Ryan, that was great. I know where we are. I know what happened. Yeah, but you have a job to do and I want to know how you're going to do it. Your topic is carte blanche. What's that all about? Yeah, as most people will probably be familiar, carte blanche is a bit of an everyday expression that most people are aware of. But carte blanche is also French. It's the French words for blank card, like a blank piece of paper or an empty canvas, something that has the potential for something to be written or drawn on it. But over time, it's taken on that more symbolic meaning, a metaphor for having the freedom to do whatever you want often without any fear of consequence. So homeowners might give a landscaper carte blanche to design them a new garden. Parents might give their child carte blanche to pick what they want to eat for dinner. And I don't know, a president might feel he has carte blanche to take home dozens of boxes of highly classified documents. Just to pluck an example out of your imagination. Exactly. Now, basically, it means you have permission to do whatever you like. But where does it come from, Pete? Well, here's the thing. The origins are not clear. No one is is absolutely certain where this originates from. Uh, some say it's a military term for surrender, with the French sending a chat blanche, an empty charter to their enemy, basically, to write out the terms of surrender on it. <laughs> so you tell us what you want us to do and we'll <laughs> sign it. Uh, others say it comes from a time when French kings would sign blank proclamations and just give them out to landowners to write in their own laws and taxes. Nice, that's a blank check if ever I heard one. <laughs> right, uh, yeah, which was just a way of keeping all these influential people on their side whilst also being able to sort of keep their hands clean if people didn't like any new laws or taxes that these landowners were coming up with. They'd be like, oh, I didn't do it. It wasn't me. It was them. Other people claim it might come from the 18th century when aristocrats gave out a signed piece of paper to their mistresses, which basically gave them access to their credit account. Ah, an actual blank check. <laughs> yeah, yeah, literally, yeah. Others think it might be from a time where if you were going to go to a ball, imagine getting yourself all dressed I up. don't have to imagine. I'm a frequent ball goer. You would be given a card with people's names written on it and you had no option but to dance with those people. But if you were given a white card, then you could dance with whomever you liked. Nice. Yeah. But the origin story that makes most sense to me, Pete, traces back to France in the early 17th century. And basically, if you were super important, like a member of royalty, then you might be given a carte blanche, a blank invitation made of high quality paper with borders made from gold and sealed with wax, which gave you as the holder free pass to come and go at as many balls and banquets as you liked. It included unlimited access to all the special foods and drinks that were prepared for you, and it opened the door to exclusive, in quotes, party rooms. Is this the original access all areas pass? 
That's exactly yeah. it. Yeah, it's a backstage <laughs> pass. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, regardless of its origins, by the 1800s, the phrase has become a general metaphor for giving power to someone to do with it as they see fit, pretty much as we use it today. And it's a pretty common phrase, especially in Europe, or rather mostly in Europe. The Italians call it carta bianca, the Spanish call it carta blanca, and the Portuguese call it carta branca. (laughs) (laughs) Other nationalities, though, they use different terms. Some might say free hand or open hand. The Russians call it freedom of action. The Thai call it full authority. And the Norwegians use fritz spillerum, (laughs) (laughs) which means free playroom. Oh, free playroom. I like that. But anyway, whatever you call it, it all translates to the same meaning, being given freedom to do as you see fit. And that's where today's episode comes in, because the carte blanche in Guadeloupe that we're going to be looking at today is inspired by the former president of France, Francois Hollande, who said in a speech in 2015 that freedom is the foundation of our society. We must always fight for equality, regardless of our origins, beliefs or sexual orientation, which given the history of slavery in Guadeloupe, is especially relevant. And so today, we're going to be looking at how people should be free from the chains of slavery, exploitation and oppression, and have carte blanche to live their lives enjoying the human rights we all deserve. I like it, Ryan. Let's learn more. Let's do it! Tickets, please. Here you go. Thank you. Uh, Very funny, sir. Ticket, please. That's it. That's my ticket. But this is just a blank white card, sir. Yes, it is. It's my carte blanche. A nice man at the station sold it to me. And how does sir think that this works? Well, I can go anywhere, within reason. There is, in fact, a list of places I can't go printed upon it. It's just a blank card, sir. (laughs) Exactly. I can go anywhere. Carte blanche. And you purchased this from the ticket office, did you, sir? Not the ticket office. There was a man standing out the front. And he was wearing an official company uniform? Of course, although now I think about it, it was more of a Thomas the Tank Engine t-shirt. Yes, look, I'm afraid, sir, you've been tricked. Oh, no. Yes, it does happen from time to time, and uh, I'm afraid you're going to have to buy another ticket. Oh, right. Oh, okay, fine. Now, can I interest you in this blank travel path, sir? Uh, You just write in your own destination and you can travel anywhere you want. Ooh, interesting. Is it expensive? It's just £500. I'll take it. Okay, Ryan, I now understand carte blanche. I know where we are. I've learned the history. How are you going to bring it all together? Well, okay. So here's the thing. Before we get into our time period, I need to kind of set the scene. (laughs) (laughs) Do you? Yeah, I do. So our first section begins a decade before our time period, back in 1998. That's okay. That sounds reasonable. All right. (laughs) That's me time traveling back to 1998. That is the sound of time travel. Everyone knows that. Okay. So 52 years have passed since uh, the islands of Guadeloupe were granted full departmental status in 1946. That means that the people living there have the same political rights as those living in France. We know that because I told you earlier. Now, that (laughs) That doesn't mean that things are super peachy there. At the beginning of 1998, there is a series of hurricanes which have hit the island, causing damage to the island's economy, resulting in job losses and widespread hardship. Turns out hurricanes in the Caribbean tend to be a frequent thing and disaster does tend to hit Guadeloupe quite a lot. But yeah, so with that hardship, Guadeloupe make calls to France saying, hey, we need some help here, but the support doesn't really come quick enough. And frustrated with the French system failing them, some of the islanders start to question whether they ought to just have the autonomy to look after the islands, you know, themselves. And so, the Regional Council of Guadeloupe, they propose a referendum to challenge France's control, basically seeking to give themselves the power to improve the lives of their own people. Now, perhaps, unsurprisingly, this is met with some resistance from the French government. Oh yeah, now they don't have to pony up to help them out. Suddenly they're like, no, don't go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They So they oppose the idea of a referendum, right? They argue that the referendum is unnecessary because Guadeloupe already has a high degree of autonomy and any further ability to self-govern would just simply weaken ties between them. And we definitely shouldn't ask the people what they think. <laughs> exactly. Regardless, they did ask the people 
for what they thought. And a referendum went ahead. And after the votes were counted, 44% of the island's population voted in favour of autonomy. Oh. 56% voted to remain governed by France. The main reason being that leaving France would only lead to further economic hardship and a loss of culture and identity. With almost half of the island having to accept the loss of the referendum, tensions rise, particularly between some of the black population and the minority whites. The black community, they feel rejected, and the conversation shifts to debates about the legacy of slavery on the island and the continuing discrimination faced by black people. A type of slavery in name, where, you know, while they're not legally enslaved, they're still being exploited and essentially discriminated against. Yeah, you must have a slight sense that if a hurricane flattened Marseille, the response would have been different. You got to question that, right? Yeah. yeah. Now, simply put, the loss of the referendum meant that Guadeloupe was seen by almost half of its citizens as still a colonial society. And so, under growing pressure, the French government decides that they need to make a bit more of an effort to address the perception that they are modern-day colonisers. And so, by the end of 1998, the idea of a museum of slavery and the slave trade appears. That conversation circles around for a while, and six years later, on October 26th, 2004, the president of the Guadeloupe Regional Council, a man named Victorin Laurel, who, by the way, had voted no in the referendum, makes a pledge to create a memorial on the slave trade and slavery. Now, he envisions a space dedicated to the collective remembrance of slavery, a place that can bring together all people around a common past, a museum which would be open to the world, and a memorial which will inspire everyone to reflect upon liberty and freedom. In the words of Laurel himself, it would not be a fine arts or society museum, but a space designed to host multiple activities, multiple approaches, multiple ambitions, and whose primary mission is to promote living together better. That's a nice idea, right? Very much so. I support it. Uh, indeed. He said that it would describe the atrocities suffered by the victims of slavery, but also open a window on the future, an act of remembrance as a tool to help build a new society. And so, in 2005, a scientific committee is formed with professors, historians and heritage chiefs working together on a board to help define the scope of this project. A project which became known as Memorial Act de la Independence, meaning Memorial to the Act of Independence. I feel like I'm, my French is improving because I could have guessed that. <laughs> yeah. Or more simply called the Memorial ACTE, the Memorial Act. Ah. Yeah. So the first thing that the committee agrees is that they needed to build a monument to Guadeloupe and the Caribbean, a large permanent exhibition which could host events and shows that offered visitors an educational experience. This would be a venue which would describe the reality of the European slavery system of the past, but also shine a light on contemporary forms of enslavement too, racism and uh, all forms of ostracism. But it was also going to be a place that would encourage research on the slave trade and their as a means to shedding new light on those grey areas that they were facing at the moment and confront any attempts at revisionist histories, which were increasingly becoming part of society, a way to downplay the miserable reality of the past. And so, work gets underway. They try to identify the specific cultural and scientific programming that would be presented there, and as a physical act of their intentions, Laurel and his team commemorate the 160th anniversary of the abolition of slavery in Guadeloupe by laying a foundation stone. So, things are rolling along nicely, Pete. That is, until Jacques Chirac, the then French president, declares that the memorial is too good of an idea to be built just in lowly Guadeloupe, and decides instead that it should be built not in the Caribbean, but in Paris. That feels a lot like massively missing the point. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, now, as you might understand, this throws the memorial team in Guadeloupe into something of a panic. Uh, <laughs> but they don't have to worry for too long, because not long after making that decision, President Chirac loses the next general election. And the uh, new leader of France, Nicolas Sarkozy, he just abandons the idea entirely. <laughs> he is completely opposed to the idea of any French repentance. So, sadly, progress on the memorial stops, and we'll find out what happens next after this. Welcome everyone to the Museum of Slavery, if you'd just like to step through to the main exhibit. Oh, uh, what's going on? <laughs> now if everybody could just pop these on for the tour. 
manacles? It is a very interactive museum. Also, here's your machete and some nice rags to change into. Wait, wait, what's happening? Well, as you paid for the full slavery memorial experience, we're going to pop out into the museum's own sugarcane fields, where you too can experience cutting cane for 13 hours under the blazing Caribbean sun. But I, I don't want to do that. Of course you don't. Well done. You're really getting into the spirit of slavery already. Now get to work. But I... I said get to work, slave. Ah, oh, oh my God, this is awful. Can I get a bottle of water or something? Oh, of course you can. Water is available for everyone at a reasonable price from the gift shop. Okay, Pete. So, to recap, tensions in Guadeloupe regarding a lack of autonomy results in a renewed debate about the history of slavery and the lack of freedom that the island has to manage and direct its own future. A memorial to atrocities of the past is proposed as a way of helping ease tensions, but in 2007 this is put to a stop by incoming French President Nicolas Sarkozy. So to recap your recap, there's an argument about we don't have enough control. They decide to do something about it and that control is taken away. Yeah, well to recap your recap, (laughs) here's another recap. Problems, Guadeloupe, (laughs) statue or museum, bad government. (laughs) Okay, so a couple of years passes. It's now 2010. That's convenient. (laughs) We're into it. We're into the space. (laughs) It is. It's the start of our time period. And Victorin Lorel, the man who started work on developing the memorial, is now president of the Guadeloupe region. He's won the election by a strong majority, 56% of the vote. And while he's restricted by Sarkozy's decision to stop the project, it doesn't stop him from continuing to build out the plan on the side, hoping to sort of find funding from elsewhere. And as such, development continues and plans for the memorial start to take shape. But key to the project's success, Pete, is where to locate it. And so Laurel and his team set out to identify a suitable location, and it doesn't take them long. Because on the island of Grand Terre, at the heart of the city called Pont-au-Prix, directly on the waterfront, in full view of the city, is the perfect area. An 8,000 square metre derelict scrubland. I love a bit of scrubland. It's got potential. It's a fixer-upper could almost say it's carte blanche. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should say that. Say it, right? Yeah, it's almost carte blanche there for them go. to do something with. Oh, beautiful. Anyway, this is a derelict scrubland, Pete, but it is a derelict scrubland with a significant past. Now, since its founding in 1763 by merchants who arrived from France, pont has a history of being the economic capital of Guadeloupe. Now, initially, the merchants that landed there, they used the land to start a timber industry, cutting down all the trees and selling off the wood. But by 1869, when the forests started to dwindle out from over-chopping, these (laughs) French industrialists turned their minds to other ventures. People like Ernest Souquet and Jean-Francois Cahill, who uh, gave up on trees and started growing sugar cane instead. Now, their success started a sugar rush on the island. A sugar rush, I like it. I like what you did there. (laughs) Thanks, man. And so other capitalists see this as an opportunity to do the same, and they start growing sugarcane too and processing it in refineries that they start building on the island. And one of those was Jean d'Arboussier, who became so successful at sugar processing that eventually he became the wealthiest person in Guadeloupe. But sugar making was labour intensive, Pete. And when France abolished slavery in 1848, it meant that the Darboussier family had to face the fact that their cheap workforce was now free to go find other work. So Darboussier and the other refiners, they all tried to work around this. They brought in labour from Cabo Verde and from other Caribbean islands, shipping in thousands of Indians and buying the freedom of slaves on the understanding that they would work 10-year contracts on incredibly low salaries. What a bargain. Indeed. In fact, at one point, more than 70% of their workforce was Indian. There were several hundred Chinese, 450 Japanese, and political prisoners from French Indochina who had been sentenced to do forced labour in Guadeloupe. 
How close and, can we get to slavery, it sounds like? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah, it's a very fine line, isn't it? So yes, of course, all of them were paid next to nothing to produce sugar for the firm. And you might be shocked to learn it was a successful model. And after Jean de Boussier died, his son, Jean-Baptiste de Boussier, he took over the family business and decided in 1846 to expand the business's production power. He built a huge modern sugar refinery. Now, this factory used the most advanced technologies of the time. It had a steam engine, Ooh, a boiler room. Fancy. I know. I don't want you to get too excited here, Pete. But it also had an enormous warehouse. Could hold, could hold over <laughs> 1,000 tonnes of processed sugar, ready to be transported around the globe. In fact, at its peak, the Darboussier factory operated around the clock, 24-7, in three eight-hour shifts, with over 1,000 workers grinding away at machinery to produce upwards of 8,000 tonnes of sugar a year. Wow, heavy times. Yeah. It's impressive. But talking of the workers, many of them were former slaves. And for most, they were actually happy to be there. Darboussier treated them like employees with status, job security and benefits. They were given pensions, paid vacations and healthcare. He had uh, recreation facilities provided for local children. There was a sports club, a swimming pool and a basketball court, which was especially popular apparently. And every year at the Feast of St. Eligius in December, a company party was held with bosses handing out presents to the good and most generous employees. <laughs> That's a weird category system, but okay. <laughs> Isn't it? Sure, not to everyone, just the most generous employee. Yeah, they were also given access to on-site accommodation, on-site hospitals, and company-grown food that could be bought from on-site stores. This is the benefit of keeping workers content, but also ensuring that the refinery is closed circuit, a small autonomous entity within Guadeloupe that was, to many extents, autonomous of the French government's control to keep everything in-house. Yeah, I see that. There's not a lot of options when you where you live, where you eat, where you buy things, where you earn things. It's all in one little location. It's all convenience. That's what it is. <laughs> yeah. Now, today, the factory isn't remembered quite so glowingly by the relatives of those who used to work there. And the name Darboussier in Guadeloupe is today synonymous with a place that exploited their workers. For example, in 2015, Urbain Novacat, the son of a machine operator at the Darboussier refinery, was interviewed. He said that, to me, it was slavery. There wasn't a day when no one was injured. My father lost full use of one leg. The workers were all badly paid and the bosses got rich at their expense. Tale as old as time. It is. Although not everyone shares that sentiment, Pete. Considering the treatment something of a blessing, another relative was quoted as saying, Discipline at the factory was draconian, but better to wear rags than go naked. Better Darboussier than slavery. I mean, I, I, yes, but little lacking in ambition, I would argue. <laughs> <laughs> An example of where Darboussier does deserve some harsh criticism comes from their apparently generous approach of giving workers carte blanche to grow crops on company land, uh, which seems generous. But while Darboussier did offer employees the opportunity to farm their own cane fields and be paid for what they produced, this was just a form of what's called colonnage. It's a name for a type of tenant farming where the landowners give the workers poor quality land so that they're unable to produce crops large enough that they could sell to then anyone else. So they can only ever produce crops just for the landowner. Ah, very convenient. Yeah, one such farmer was Alphonse Francois, who was given a Darboussier cane field to farm, and he said, I got to keep half of what I grew, and the other half went to them. At the end of the day, colonnage wasn't really that profitable, and you were still breaking your back working for the factory. Worse still, they could cancel the agreement unilaterally. You knew you were being exploited. Oh, that's harsh. Being exploited and knowing about it at the same time, that's bad. Regardless, Debussier's approach to operating the business saw them become the major centre of sugar production in the Caribbean. They operated until the 1970s, when uh, a series of strikes stopped harvests and then a union was founded, at which point they started asking for workers' rights. And of course, that was too much noise for Darboussier. And in 1980, the refinery closed its doors, where it then lay untouched for 30 years. Wow. The power of a union. Yeah, well, it does give the counterpoint, doesn't it? Which is now nobody's got a job, I suppose. It wasn't very nice, but now there's nothing. Better rags than slavery. That's what he said. Yeah, um, it's difficult. 
difficult, isn't it? Because also, I'm a big fan of humane conditions. Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. So, yes, it lay untouched for 30 years. And in 2002, uh, Pont-à-Prix Council, they were a bit concerned that some prospectors were going to come in and start building up property on that site. And so they bought the area for 10 million euro. And it just kind of sat there for eight years, in fact, until 2010, uh, at which point the site had been completely reclaimed by nature. All that remained were broken walls covered in tree roots and remnants of trucks and railway tracks and rusty boilers, basically anything that hadn't been dismantled and sold off for scrap. And so it was, though, Pete, that this broken down historic site, a symbolic link to the slave trade of old, was the perfect choice for Laurel's team to place their memorial. It was an opportunity to bring new life to the neighbourhood, whilst simultaneously highlighting the roots of Caribbean history. But an idea and a location does not a memorial make. You need a design and you need funding, both of which we'll talk about after this. another recap recap me <laughs> okay it's the early 2010s and president of the guadeloupe region victorin laurel is attempting to build the memorial act a museum of slavery in the guadeloupe city of pontapri now he's hamstrung by government policy which is restricting funding but he's not letting that stop work on the project he and his team have identified a location for the building but now they need something to bring it to life a design that gets to the heart of the project so what do you do pete hire an artist it's exactly right. But what they decided to do was to go out in an international competition to find the right artist, the right creative team. So 27 architects from around the world are given carte blanche to design something that Guadalupeans would be able to feel a sense of ownership in. They're given the task of finding something that the people could identify with, something that helps them recognise their own representations of slavery, but can also speak to other communities to act as a collective memory that people around the world can visit and share in. So once the designs are submitted, Laurel and his project team, they sit around and take a look at all these designs and they identify their favourite. And the winning design comes from homegrown Guadalupean citizen, Pascal Berthelet, who in his own words said, I envisioned the memorial as a beacon for the island, a new geographical centre of gravity, which symbolises its cultural and intellectual soul. That sounds magnificent, but is it also hurricane-proof? <laughs> I like that you're asking the real questions here. <laughs> I, just, I know what happened in 98. It wasn't good. <laughs> now, uh, given the challenge of being the lead architect, Pascal Berthelet said in an interview in 2010 that our architectural response is tinted with emotion because it takes the shape of the act of remembrance, the expression of a people whose memory has often been suppressed and denied. Our commitment is absolute. From now on, our work will focus on establishing a link between the monument and the town through its morphology and location. Sounds smart, doesn't it? I was going to say, uh, it's uh, architects will arty, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, super smart people. Yeah. And so with that in mind, he and his team of architects, they set out to work on refining this vision. So, functionally, they propose two independent spaces, linked by a 40-metre-long metal bridge, which would give views of the seafront, basically, as you cross over it. Now, this would represent the cornerstone of the memorial, two spaces which would shelter all the riches contained in the knowledge of the past and upon which memory is being built. 
as Berthelay said. Now, <laughs> I, I did think you didn't come up with that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now, the first space he proposes would be huge, a large 1,500 square metre permanent exhibition that would offer visitors at least an hour-long tour. And the second smaller space, linked by the bridge, would be an exhibition hall. It would host a new major exhibition every year, and together these exhibition halls would include a 300-seat multi-purpose hall, film screenings and conventions, as well as a space to hold festivals, trade fairs and networking events. But Berthelet also proposed other smaller buildings too, a space dedicated to helping promote research by hosting guest experts, another building as a centre for public documentation, and a genealogical archive holding all those civil registry documents which members of the public could go and look to investigate their ancestry. Berthelet's team also designed a garden too, which they called Morn Memoir, Memory Hill, uh, which could be accessed by a short and peaceful walk along the coast. Now, at its peak, Pascal estimated that the Memorial Act would be able to attract 300,000 visitors a year. And to help achieve that, he also included in his design a pontoon that could be used to berth cruise ship shuttles directly at the Memorial's entrance. Uh, get some of that sweet cruise ship action. Now, visually, Berthelet and his team then proposed a facade for the two main buildings. And now what they proposed was that it would be constructed of black quartz. Now, black quartz has sort of speckled minerals throughout. And what they said was that this would act as a symbolic tribute to the countless victims of slavery, sparkling in the sunlight like a constellation of millions of lost souls. Oh, that's nice. It's really nice, yeah. And covering those black boxes, they said there would be a fishnet of silver latticework, which he called the silver roots, made to evoke the structure of tree roots, which would anchor the main building to the ground, and in his own words, evoke the quest of origins to which the history of slavery and the slave trade inevitably brings us, reflecting the global impulse by suggesting growth, motion, and life. In brackets, also hurricane-proof. <laughs> 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 yes, if you looked at Appendix 4, <laughs> stability. <laughs> and so, Pete, armed with an idea, a location, and now a design, Victor and Laurel and his team are poised to make the memorial a reality. But with a budget totaling somewhere around 40 million euros, the problem he faces now is that the government is still refusing to allocate any funding. So what happened next? I think they said, we will give you the funding, but we need to erect your masterpiece in Toulouse. Well, we'll find out after this. <laughs> <laughs> Darling, it's the Architecture Awards. We have to be there on time, you know. OK, Pascal, I'm just finishing my makeup. Righto. You know, I'm very proud of you. It's just a design award, darling. Well, I'm sure you deserve it, though. Really, we do need to leave soon, love. OK, OK. How do I look? Well... What, what? What is it? No, no, I mean, it's it's fine. Let, let's go. Pascal, tell me. Well, it's just, you know, your dress. My dress? Well, what about it? Well, I mean, the asymmetric cut of the blouse. It's too bold. It creates discord with the verticality of the skirt silhouette. The pairing of citrus tones with a muted neutral, it's jarring. It lacks a harmonious gradient. The proportions are concerning, and it ignores fundamental principles of design. The materials lack structural integrity, and... I'm afraid the overall result is, at best, confused. Oh, uh, right. Perhaps some sketches and a paper model would help us visualise a better solution. No, it's fine. I'll just get changed. OK, but do hurry up, love. You're making us late again. In 2012, the French economy is in recession, and loads of its citizens put the blame squarely on the shoulders of President Nicolas Sarkozy. Yeah, hater of monuments. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. He is seen as arrogant and out of touch. His uh, right-leaning policies mean that people tend to see him as being a little too closely tied to the wealthy and the powerful, giving out tax breaks that favour the already rich. Unemployment rates are high, small businesses are struggling, austerity measures are just not popular with most voters. Voters, and at the same time, there is a growing rise of the far right. And so seeing voters shifting their allegiance from Sarkozy's Conservative Party to the National Front, led by Marine Le Pen. However, this split in the right-wing vote gives an advantage to the left, something that they take full advantage of by running an election campaign based on populist reforms. They want to raise the minimum wage and increase taxes on the wealthy. Surprise! <laughs> 
And so, when people go to the polls to cast their votes, on the 6th of May 2012, Nicolas Sarkozy gains 48% of the votes, coming second to Francois Hollande, who collected 51.6% of the votes and subsequently became the new president of the French Republic. And what's his position on memorials? Well, this is the end of a conservative era for France and the beginning of a new era of social democratic rule. And this is fortunate for Victorine Laurel because at the top of President Hollande's overseas agenda is greenlighting the creation of a memorial to slavery. I've got one of those, he thinks. <laughs> he says, Just, has anybody got any plans for that? And so, finally, with the promise of partial funding from the French state, Laurel and his team set to work. And so by March 2013, the construction phase of the Memorial Act is underway. Hurrah! Exactly. So just one year later, on the 21st of March 2014, Laurel holds an, an inauguration of the Memorial Act Project House. This is their site that people can go to for information about the project. It's not the actual finished thing. Another year later, in 2015, construction finishes at a cost of 84 million euros, double the initial budget. And on the 10th of May 2015, the French National Day of Commemoration of the Abolition of Slavery, the Caribbean Centre of Expressions and Memory of the Slave Trade and Slavery was inaugurated. Nice! Attending the event is the French president, Francois Hollande, as well as several heads of state and government from Africa and the Caribbean. A notable exception, though, at the inauguration is Luc René, who fights for Guadeloupean independence and so refused to attend the event as a show of his disapproval for the French president being there. Ooh. Yeah. A fortnight later, a large festival is held around the memorial, and after some final work to fit and finish the buildings, on the 7th of July 2015, a grand ceremony is held and the exhibitions open to the public. Hurrah! I want to see it. I also want to see it. It's an amazing building. We will post pictures of it because it's it's astonishing looking building. The memorial opened to great success, Pete. It continues to be one of, if not the single largest tourist attraction on Guadeloupe. And it is a landmark on UNESCO's Slave Route Project, which is an initiative that they set up to showcase the global scale of the slave trade. Basically, they've connected loads of different archives, historical sites, museums and galleries together. And this is now one of them. It's also rated highly on TripAdvisor.com, and uh, it has hundreds of five-star reviews, including user Getaway60636528465 from Sweden. I think I know him. <laughs> you simply cannot miss this museum if you go to Guadeloupe. It is an absolute must. Fibonex269 from Unknown says, One will leave feeling moved, saddened, and angry that we are still dealing with this issue. But not everyone is impressed with the memorial, Pete. One reviewer, Laurent E. from France, gave it a one-star review because, and I quote, They force you to get rid of your phone if you want to visit. They say it's to avoid people taking pictures. Seriously, we are in the 21st century. Trying to forbid people to take pictures and take their phones away is like modern slavery. Oh, <laughs> I feel someone should have paid closer attention to the content of the exhibit, but uh, who am I to judge? So there you go. <laughs> you have been warned. They will take your phones away. Understood. Modern slavery. <laughs> oh, my Lord. But there we are, Pete. In Guadeloupe, during 2010 to 2015, a monument was built to freedom, a permanent statement on the horrors of slavery, exploitation and oppression, and a physical reminder that we should all have carte blanche to live our lives enjoying the human rights we deserve. I love it, Ryan. I think you did beautifully. You had carte blanche. You brought us something fascinating. It's a very narrow time period and a very small place. Could have been very challenging, but you brought us an excellent story. I very much enjoyed that. Thank you, my friend. My absolute pleasure. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Now, that was marvellous and I enjoyed it very much, but we must turn our attentions to what comes next. Absolutely. It's time to roll out the Desimilator. Roll them out. Roll them out. Okay, I'm going to switch it on. Here we go. Are you excited? I'm very excited. Okay, and your place is... Himalayas. Himalayas? I knew a guy called Himalaya. Is it mean his house? <laughs> yeah, if you want. It's however you want to interpret it, really. <laughs> Himalaya's house. Okay. <laughs> All the mountains. I'll, I'll figure it out later. Okay, let's get you a time period. You ready? Yep. Here we go. And your time is... 
1950 to 1960. Yes. You're going to the 50s. Written records. I love it. <laughs> and some uh, funky music. That's good. Okay. And you're going to want a topic, aren't you? Yes, sir. And your topic is... Mountain. <laughs> it's... <laughs> Plumbing. Plumbing. <laughs> plumbing. Yeah, your, your episode is plumbing in the Himalayas during the 1950s. I am full of confidence, <laughs> brimming with optimism. Slightly you, nervous. Slightly nervous on the plumbing. I was I was riding high until plumbing, to be honest with you, but uh, I'm sure. I mean, rock. It could have been. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Height. Cold, snow, blue, I wasn't green. expecting plumbing, plumbing, I'll be honest. That's very specific, isn't it? But I will find something, Ryan. Fear not. Yeah. All right. Good luck, Petey. Thanks, man. Okay, so that's our show for this week. Thank you so much for listening. If, as ever, you'd like to get in touch about any of the things we've talked about on the show, or if you just want to say hello, you can reach out to us through the website, which is hhepodcast.com, or email Pete and Ryan at hhepodcast.com. That's right. We love hearing from you. And you never know, if you do get in contact, you might end up featured on a future show. If you're on Mastodon, Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, now known as X, you can find us at hhepodcast. That's right. And if you subscribe to those, you're going to get an alert every time we post extra content. We post things that we don't use, photos from the show, other bits and bobs, loads of stuff that will keep you fascinated and intrigued. Yeah, pictures of the memorial will definitely go up. And of course, we'll be back again soon with... The Verdict. But until then, a huge thank you to you, Ryan. And thank you to you, Peter. And that's it. I guess all that's left to say is... You've been listening to... History Happened Everywhere. Hey, Ryan. Hey, Pete. I was thinking this episode I'm giving you carte blanche to edit it. However, you want? Really? Yes. Really. No notes. No changes. I can edit it how I like. Yep. You deserve it. Wow. Thanks, man. That is okay. I mean, it will really give me the opportunity to just let my creative juices flowing. My pleasure. I mean, I can tighten our dialogue, make things a bit snappier, throw in some cool stings. This is going to be great. Yes. And you're really okay with this? Yes. Great. Because normally you shout at me and call me an idiot. You are not an idiot. Well, that means the world to me to hear that. I am an idiot. Oh, no, come on. Don't say that, mate. I am. Well, if you say so. I do. Hey, Ryan. Oh, uh, uh, hey, 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 Pete. So are we going to record the end sketch or what? I've been waiting ages. Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, I'll just hit the record button now. Carte Blanche!